just like to open up some scripture of the Christmas story. Christmas story is found in Luke. Christmas story is found in Matthew. And Christmas story is also found in uh, Isaiah. And then you get the Christmas story from God's perspective um, in John. In uh, the first chapter of John is where the Christmas story is mentioned. And one thing that the Bible does not do is the Bible does not glamorize the Christmas story whatsoever. In our culture, we easily glamorize the Christmas story in a sense that it's a manger, but it's a clean manger. It's, it's, it's a, a beautiful manger that is, you know, there's no poop in the stalls at all. And it's not that big of a deal at all on how beautiful it was. In fact, the story goes that, you know, that Mary, uh, you know, walked. You know, they say that she's on a, a donkey, but really, if you look in the Bible, the Bible doesn't say she's on a donkey. She walked 90 miles uh, being pregnant. Now, uh, I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, and it was 500 miles. I know what it feels like to hike 90 miles. And as you hike 90 miles, I'll tell you one thing that's in my mind is that uh, I want the lightest pack available that I have on the market. And uh, so when I look at my pack, I mean, my pack only weighs 2 pounds, but my base weight weighs 16 pounds, and my max uh, weight weighs about 28 pounds, because no matter what you have on your back, I will tell you that it will weigh you down, it will take out your feet, and it will wipe you out. Um, I did some uh, research on the internet because my wife told me never to talk about women's weight from the pulpit. But when a woman gets pregnant, she gains anywhere from 28 to 40 pounds. <laughs> so my pack was even lighter than her pack, but she was nine months pregnant as she walked. Nothing glamorous about that whatsoever. And then when she shows up, there's no room in the end. And then we got the dirty shepherds that come. There's nothing glamorous about it. And the Bible makes a point not to make it glamorous. It does. It just makes a point not to make it glamorous. I'd like to read out of Matthew. This is a Christmas story that you really don't sit behind, by the tree and you read as a family. It's a Christmas story that, uh, um, in fact, you might never even heard from the pulpit. Um, but it is a Christmas story of Matthew's account and how he launches into the Christmas story. Because Matthew's account of the Christmas story is broken up in two sections. One is the genealogies with Joseph, and the next part is, is about Herod. So this is how Matthew launches his Christmas story. Matthew 1, 1 through 7 says this, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadab. Abinadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, and his mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Adijah. Adijah, the father of Asa. And then I want to skip a little bit. Elud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matanon. Matanon, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. That's definitely not the Christmas story that we are used to. However, let's look into it. What is it? It's a genealogy that went all the way from the Old Testament before Jesus ever arrived in the manger. 
a genealogy that goes all the way from the Old Testament is wrapped up into a single passage before Matthew launches into a Christmas story. He wants to give you this genealogy, but why does he want to give you this genealogy? The reason why he wants to give you a genealogy is because a genealogy, and I want you to look at this from a, a, an ancient perspective, the genealogy tells you a lot about the person that is where he's from. Tells you a lot about who the person is, who his parents is, and who his grandparents is, and the heritage that comes down is very, very important. In fact, in the old days, it was very important to be a king and know the genealogy. Why? Because you're looking for royal blood. If a king shows up, royal blood is going to take place, and it is extremely important because that royal blood is going to do what? It's going to put him on the throne. It's going to put him on the throne. So here he writes a genealogy explaining. Where Jesus came from. And the genealogy also carries something else. It's like a resume. It's like, this is who I am because of these people here. This is my resume. This is my qualifications. And this is where I'm from. Therefore, I should be granted this. Genealogies of the ancient times are very, very important. In fact, they're so important that people monkey around with their genealogy. The reason why they'd monkey around with their genealogy, because if it was their resume, they wanted their resume to look good. In fact, they don't even know King Herod's genealogy. The reason why is because he monkeyed around with it so much that there's no account of King Herod's genealogy, because the genealogy carries so much importance. It's his resume, it tells him who he is, and it tells him his qualifications. Look at um, Jesus' genealogy. If you look at Jesus' genealogy, it has some things that point out pretty very strong. Number one, in its genealogy, there's gender outsiders. There's five women that are mentioned in the genealogy. Now, in our world, we think, well, that would be no big deal. But in this ancient world, women were gender outsiders. And inside of Jesus' genealogy, five women were mentioned. And if you look through his genealogy, you also see that there's racial outsiders, Gentiles, such as Moabites. Who are the Moabites? Moabites is... Uh, was uh, a Lot's son. Abraham and Lot's directions. And the Moabites, they're not under God's line at all. Complete racial outsiders. Canaanites. Canaanites were the people that Joshua conquered for the land. So we talk about race back and then. These are tribes that fight each other. This is very, very much racial tension. Asking, well, what tribe are you from? Well, we want to ask the question, well, what tribe is Jesus from? He has racial outsiders all the way through the whole thing. The other thing he has, he has moral outsiders. In fact, if you look at these people, they're not perfect at all. In fact, I just want to look at Matthew 1, 3. says, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. This is a genealogy that takes place, but who's Tamar? Tamar was a widowed daughter-in-law of Judah who disguised herself as a prostitute in order to trick Judah to get pregnant so she could still have, be part of the family line. She's cheating. So if you look at this passage, there's three things that should shock us. Number one, Judah should not have been sleeping with a prostitute, (laughs) period. Number two, Tamar should have been acting like a prostitute. And number three, why in the world did Matthew mention it? Look at the passage. He didn't have to mention it. He could have just said, Judah, the father of Perez. Perez, the father of Hezron. But what does he do? He mentions it. He brings it up. He tells the whole world 
what Jesus' genealogy is when he really didn't necessarily need to. He does it again in chapter 6. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Now, if you want a good resume, you want a king on your resume, don't you? (laughs) Absolutely. There's a good resume. King David. But then look what Matthew puts down. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Oh, what's what's going on there? He didn't even mention who, who that was. Well, it's Bathsheba, but he didn't even say their name. And number two, why did he even mention it? Jesse, the father of David, King David, David was the father of Solomon. He could have just kept on going. He didn't need to put Uriah's wife there. Remember the story? Who was Uriah's wife? Or uh, who was uh, Uriah's wife? Well, the story is that, you know, they all went out to war. All King's soldiers went out to war. And Uriah is one of King David's mighty men, strong men. Men's best friend, and he was out to war, completely loyal to the king. And David doesn't go to war; he stays home. And as he stays home, he sees Uriah—he uh, sees Uriah's wife with his Bathsheba bathing. And as she is bathing, what does he do? He calls her up to his room. He has an adulterous affair, and he tries to cover it by call, bringing Uriah back home. And as he brings Uriah back home, he tries to get her to sleep with. Bathsheba, and he doesn't because he's so loyal. So he sends a messenger with Uriah to have Uriah put on the front lines to be killed, murdered, because of David doing it. And it happens, and then he marries Bathsheba, and then they have a son whose name is Solomon. Now, Matthew didn't need to give you all that account, did he? But he does. But he does. It's almost like Matthew is bringing up all the dirt in Jesus's resume. And does he really need to do it? I mean, you could fiddle with resumes a little bit. I mean, I was a logger. And when I was a logger, I I used to uh, what they call running strip. And running strip is when uh, helicopter loggers, what they do is I would run up and down where all the, the logs are cut. And as I run strip, I'd be on the top of the wood and I'd drop sets of chokers with the little helicopter. The little helicopter would come, they'd drop the chokers, and as they dropped the chokers, I would tell them where to go. And then the big helicopter would come up behind it, and then they'd pick up all the turns that were set. So I ran strip, and I was also the hooker on the helicopter. The hooker on the helicopter is the person that goes underneath the big helicopter, and when the big helicopter comes in, you put the hooks in the hook, and it goes up, pulls out all the logs, and it is extremely aggressive all day long. So what was I? I was a strip runner that ran hook. A hooker is what they called it. And if you went into a job of me applying for a logging job and say, hey, I'm a really good hooker that runs strip, I tell you, I get hired in a second. <laughs> it's pretty hard to land a job being a pastor with that kind of resume. So what I, what I, what I did is I, it's, I'm not breaking any rules. D knows. I'm not breaking any rules. I just have to reword it a little bit. And if I reword it a little bit, then I might be able to land a job as a pastor. Matthew could have reworded this a little bit. But he didn't. He didn't reword it a little bit. If this was the case, Matthew must want you to know something about, gene- about Jesus' genealogy. There's four things that I think Matthew is communicating through Jesus' genealogy. Number one, the genealogy shows God's values are different than ours. 
The genealogy shows that God's values are different than ours. The world values pedigree. The world values class. The world values race. The world values money. God values them. God values them. Matthew put the genealogy the way it was with all the family dirt, with all the things that took place, because God valued them. Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, slave, free, moral messes. That's what they are all the way through. The other reason why the genealogy, what the genealogy tells us about God is that Jesus brings the excluded into his family. Those who are excluded from culture, excluded from respective society, even excluded from the law of God. Because these people were not even supposed to worship in the temple back in the Old Testament. All these people should have been excluded outsiders. But when Jesus came in, what did he do? He says, I will take them as my own. Number three, he's not ashamed of his family. (laughs) Matthew puts it all down for a reason. The reason why is because Jesus is shouting from the top of his lungs that I am not ashamed of my family. You see, Joseph was not the person. All the line was going to Joseph, but Joseph was not the person that conceived the son, Jesus. The Holy Spirit conceived Mary, conceived Jesus. And Jesus was born by the Holy Spirit and Mary. What took place was Jesus, or God literally said, Joseph, thank you for your heritage. Thank you so much for the bloodline of the Messiah that has come this way, but I will take it over. They are my heritage now. They are my resume. What is Jesus saying that they are my resume? Well, the resume of a king comes from their heritage. The resume of the king comes from the heritage. The perfection of the king, the power of the king, the position of the king comes from the heritage. But in this, Jesus turned the whole thing around. He came to earth and said, that heritage that I came after, I am the one that's going to give them position. In fact, they, Abraham, Moses, all the ones that are mentioned, are my heritage. Because I'm not coming to be what I am from them. I'm coming to literally save them. Matthew 1 One says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. I am proud of those people because as you see those people, those are the people that you're going to see my success in because I'm going to save them no matter how bad they are, no matter who they are, no matter what has taken place in their life. I am going to save them. I have welcomed them into my family. The other thing that the genealogy tells us about God is that God is a God of grace perfect genealogy was not given for a reason. And the reason why is because God is a God that will give all those people something that they never deserved. Nobody on this list deserved to be in God's family, and neither do you. Neither do me. None of us deserve to be in God's family. But yet, they are in the list. In fact, God accepts all people except one. He accepts all people except what? You can read the genealogy. He obviously accepts all people. But he does not accept one person. And who is the person that God does not accept? The person that God does not accept is a person that believes that they really don't need him. God is making a huge statement to the world at the birth of Jesus Christ. And the huge statement 
to the world is that you can be a part of the family of God if you do what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then you will be saved. No matter where you have come from, no matter who you are, and no matter what you have done, you can be a part of God's family. That's what Christmas is all about. Before Jesus, we see even the manger. Before we even see all the structure of the the shepherds. Before we see everything take place in Christmas, this genealogy was given for the purpose of saying why Jesus arrived in the first place. For those who are cast out. We're going to take communion. As we take communion, in 1 Corinthians, Paul explained that as often as you do it, take communion. Remember me. Remember what? Remember that Jesus came. Remember that Jesus died. And remember that Jesus rose and you can be part of his family if you believe him. So we're going to take communion tonight. And as we take communion tonight, I just want you guys to ask two questions or to say two statements. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, when you walk up to the cup, when you walk up to the bread, this is my broken body, this is my spilt blood for you. All your sins, all your past can be absolutely washed away if you believe in God. If you believe in God, I want you to say thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for dying. Thank you for raising. I live as a result. If you are one that um, says, well, I... I've never even said that I need Jesus in my life. In fact, I've never even believed in him. I knew he was there, but I didn't embrace him. I didn't accept him. Then I'd encourage you to go to the bread, and I'd encourage you to go to the cup, take communion. I encourage you to do it. But when you go up there, pick up the bread and say, Jesus, because of your death, I can be part of your family. Pick up the juice. God, because of your blood that's spilled for me, I can be part of your family and accept him right there at the table. That's what Christmas is about. It's a radical message more than just an event in history. Yes, it is an event in history, but it's a radical message, a radical message that comes so aggressive that it will literally save your soul if you embrace him. Father, again, we just rejoice. We rejoice that you came to earth, God, and that you came for us, God, and that we could be part of your family, God, if we believe in you. We just thank you, God, so much for leaving heaven, God, someplace you did not need to leave, but you left it. And then you were placed in the manger. Oh, God, what a gift. And God, the gift uh, completely cost, but it wasn't our price, God. It was yours. Thank you so much, God, that we can be saved as a result of what you've done. In Christ's name, amen.